was good, y'all. This is Jean. And it's that time of the year again, the time of the year when you're thinking about giving. You know, getting something nice for your moms or your uncle or your little ones or for Bay. Oh, aren't you so sweet? Well, since you're in that spirit right now of giving, consider this a little nudge to give to your local public radio station. If you rock with us at Code Switch, you know how often we turn to the tweets you send us and we turn them into whole segments. You know how often we respond directly to the emails that you send our way. The concerns you have, the questions you want answered, that's all the stuff we want to know too. That's part of the mission of public radio. It's in the DNA of it thoughtful, community-oriented journalism. So when you support your local public radio member station, it goes a long, long way to making our podcasts and other podcasts like it possible. And those member stations can only do what they do because they are supported by listeners just like you. So keep showing your support for your local member stations. Go to donate.npr.org slash codeswitch and give. That's donate.npr.org slash codeswitch. All right, y'all. On with the show. You're listening to Code Switch. I'm Shereen Marisol Meraji. And I'm Gene Demby. And on this episode, we've got the stories behind some American anthems. Actually, more American anthems because we've done this on the podcast once before. Mm-hmm. We've talked about iconic songs that carry historical significance. And it's part of a series NPR is doing on songs that galvanized and mobilized Americans. Right. On our last episode, Shereen, you did a deep dive on La Bamba. That was very good. Thank you. I learned a lot. <laughs> that was really fun, too. Bilal Qureshi, who's been on the podcast a few times, he looked at Dixie. He's a Southerner. Dixie might be like the most polarizing song in the United States. It reminds me, by the way, that last episode, since we're talking about anthems, I probably need to apologize to our listeners. And why is that, Gene? So at the top of the episode, I was trying to riff on the whole anthem thing, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I led that episode with Fergie's rendition of the national anthem from last year's NBA All-Star Game. And we probably lost like a bunch of listeners because of that. (laughs) And you also ruined my streak of never having heard that version of the national anthem. I'm so sorry. I I appreciate you. A lot of listeners tweeted, I was like, yo, you should have given us a trigger warning or a content warning. You know, you can't just come out of nowhere and just assault us like that. My bad, y'all. I shouldn't have played Fergie's rendition of the national anthem like that. I should have played Carl Lewis's. Those people laughing at the end, oh, those were Sports Center announcers. That's a clip of gold medalist Carl Lewis yes. uh, singing the national anthem. Amazing athlete, not a good singer. <laughs> <laughs> it goes without saying, oh my God. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I just want to troll uh, y'all real quick. All right, now we have to cleanse some palates with some different anthems. Some good music, yes. For those of you who are still with us, <laughs> we're headed to East LA and we're going to talk about a Chicano standard that's not La Bamba and it's also not Lowrider by War either. <laughs> so keep guessing. Mm-hmm. And we're also going to talk about a children's song that doubles as a civil rights hymn. But first, we're going to hear a song, a famous song. It's also a call to action. It was sung by two different groups from two different eras that share the same name and a lot of the same DNA, actually. If you don't know it, the Isley Brothers spent the 1960s churning out hits like Shout. Well, 
You know you make me wanna shout. This old heart of mine. And it's your thing. It's your thing. Do what you're gonna do. I can tell you who to talk to. But they switched things up in 1975 when they were feeling a little bit more confrontational. Fight the Power was a top five hit for the Isleys. Ernie Isley wrote it and played the guitar. His brother Ronald sang it. And its message took everyone who thought they knew what the Isleys were all about by surprise. So when that song was blowing up, there was this kid from Long Island, New York. His name was Carlton Rittenauer. He was 15 years old at the time. And that song, he said, changed his life. Carlton Rittenauer would later take the stage name Chuck D. Mm. Chuck D, a lot of y'all know, grew up to be the front man of one of the most important hip-hop groups of all time, Public Enemy. In 1989, Chuck D and Public Enemy had their own Fight the Power. It was commissioned by Spike Lee for his movie, Do the Right Thing. That's the fight the power I know. That's the one I knew, too. NPR, believe it or not, got Chuck D to sit down with Ernie Isley and talk about their respective fight the powers. And there's some salty language in this. A little cussing. So you might want to tell your kids to duck out for about seven minutes. And Ernie Isley's fight the power, that came out just after Watergate when trust in the government was dangerously low. Plus, the economy was a mess. Everybody had a way of relating to the message. But Fight nobody knew what was happening with the presidency. Nixon right. had been, but just out. Yeah, he was out and Ford, Ford was, was shaky. Yeah. And nobody knew what 76 was, was going to come. Yeah. But for black folks in 1975, yes. it was a serious, yes. serious yes. time of doubt. Because when mm-hmm. white folks got it bad, mm-hmm. there's there's a basement underneath that that got, got mm-hmm. hell going on. And, you know, like, uh, we are like, it was optimistic. You know, time is truly wasting. There's no guarantee. Smile is in the making. We got to fight the powers that be. So, ah. so you're optimistic. You're not going to run. It's a confrontation. Right. But you don't run. You know, you stand there like, or you run towards it. You don't run away from it because you have to. You have to, or else, you know, you wind up, you know, you know somebody usually like a carpet, man. Kind of like being able to speak truth to power. And of course, when you do that, Power doesn't like it. Yeah. Because you're not saying it to agree with power. You're saying it to point out the shortcomings, the hypocrisy. I try to play my music, this my music's too loud. I try talking about it, I got to be run around. And when I roll with the punches, I got knocked on the ground by all this bullshit going down. That spoke loud to me, and I didn't even curse at the time. Yeah. But I was the first time I ever heard a curse on a record. Yeah. I started saying or reciting with all this nonsense going down. 
And Ronald took that into account. And when it came time to sing it, I heard him say, with all this BS going down. And I was sitting there like, well, he's probably gonna change that. Ronald, you're not gonna change that? Change what? <laughs> he said, no, I'm not gonna change it. Was he hot that day or mad or something? No, 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 no. It was just like a matter of fact. And I said, you know, man, you know, some people may not like, he said, Ernie, if you can say what you feel and it's embraced, wonderful. And if you can say what you feel and it's not embraced, at least you said what you feel. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. That stuck with me and it raised me. Just 14 years later, we, when um, Spike Lee had asked us mm -hmm. to come up with something that signified this movie that he was making about yeah. unrest that was in the New York City area. Yep. And uh, I need an anthem. Mm -hmm. And the thing that kept resonating in my mind was like the conditions that he was speaking about in his film. And then also the climate of the particular time. Yes. We were in the middle of R&B, that's Reagan and Bush. Right. So, <laughs> so fight the power, the, the sensibilities of the song. We don't want to sample from the record, mm -hmm. but what we want to do is carry the torch of the meaning that's to right. yell and scream back at hypocrisy because they say, you know, we, we play our music. They definitely say rap music too, too loud, loud. Mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> and we roll with the punches and we get knocked on the ground with all this BS going down. And our whole thing is like, we always gonna be criticized for cursing on records. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, and so it was like, how do we carry the torch? What we need is awareness. We can't get careless. You say, what, what is this? Many accolades have come in for Fight the Power, but I say, look, man, this is the wedge to open up the theme of the, how the world should be. And the Isley Brothers, for us, put the world how the world should be and how the world is in their whole entire discography that most of you people in America, you know it's there, you sing their songs, but you, you know, can't. You know, you make me wanna. Right, <laughs> yeah, but it's a crime for you not to identify right these contributors mm -hmm. as easy as you identify, you know, the Rolling Stones mm -hmm. or Elvis. Our history is in our music. It's if you de-emphasize our music, mm -hmm. the history is gone. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you could teach black history by default just with teaching the music. That's right. Some ways you could teach American history. Right, exactly. And if this is not taught in a school system, then someday. America is, the United States of America is continuing to cry. Yeah, someday. We gotta fight the powers that be. Elvis was a hero to most, but he Elvis was a hero to most. Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant to me. Yes, he's straight out racist. The sucker was simple and plain. Motherfucking job, When you guys came out with your fight the power and I was listening, you said, Elvis! <laughs> so did it, it, it catch your attention when you heard it? Or, yeah. Right. 
I'm listening. I'm listening to everything. I'm listening、uh-huh. to the fight the power, fight the power, fight the power, Daddy. And then all of a sudden, Elvis. I said,、like, Come on, what? what? Elvis, what? And he goes, It's all weird. All right, man. You know, you throw that, throw it up against the wall. That's right.、Like, yeah. Okay. Now you know Elvis is in my household, but there's other records in the crates. Yes, and there are greater artists that's in the crates. Not to say he was whack; he was a、yes. very talented dude. But、yes. dude, you one of the crate.、Um, Elvis was a hero the most,、yeah. but he never met S to、yeah. me. The Isley Brothers are my heroes,、mm-hmm. not these people. That was our all that, that bullshit going down in that, that particular a, song. That was a tremendous hit in its own right. And it was important that you said what you said. So you know, we might say something,、mm-hmm. but then you guys or Ice Cube or you know somebody else, man, it's like this, like it's an extension, right? You know, and and it's a, it's like a, an embrace, you know, that、uh, all of us can you know connect through generations, you know, through lifetimes. They're gonna be listening to Fight the Power by, by y'all. For as long as they got ears, you know, somebody go. It'll be rediscovered. It'll be rehashed. We're all tied together, and I, I'm really honored and happy to meet one of my extended family members. Man, we we're glad. We're glad that you all did it. We don't. We couldn't help but smile. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Like the powers that be. Yeah, that's right, man. That was Ernie Isley and Chuck D. After the break, we're gonna go cruising down Whittier Boulevard. Stay with us. Support for this NPR podcast comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, family-owned, operated, and argued over since 1980. Proud supporter of independent thought, whether that's online, over the air, or in a bottle. More at sierranevada.com. Think of Life Kit as that friend who always has the best tips about everything: how to invest your money, how to get in a good workout, and much more. Life Kit tools to help you get it together. Check it out in Apple Podcasts or at npr.org/lifekit. All right, y'all, real quick. So our play cousins at NPR Ed—that's NPR's education team—you've heard them on the Code Switch podcast before. They have some questions for y'all about how you talk to your kids about race. Like, when was the first time race as a concept or a category came up in conversation with your kids? What questions did they have? Is there anything you wish you would have handled differently? And if you haven't had this conversation yet, do you have any questions about how to begin? They want to hear from you, and if you want to participate, you can tell them a story in a voice memo by emailing it to parenting at npr dot org. Jean. Shireen. Code switch. So imagine it's a weekend evening in LA. I guess you don't have to imagine that hard, Shereen. That's like a normal weekend for you. No, I don't. It's the weekend in LA. It's warm. Yeah, my heart bleeds. <laughs> But imagine it's 1965. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's gonna be difficult for me because I'm so young. Come on, girl. Let's make it to the East Side and ride down Whittier Boulevard. You are Shireen, Mexican American Shireen, 1965.、Mm-hmm. You hop in your ride and drive down Whittier Boulevard. You're looking to link up with your friends. You're playing the radio. You're probably listening to a DJ named Godfried Kerr. Hey girl, are you digging the sights? Can you dig the lights so bright in the night? 
Godfrey Kerr helped make local stars out of the East L.A. band The Midnighters. They celebrated Cruisin' with this mostly instrumental song, and Mandalit Del Barco's gonna take us for a ride down Whittier Boulevard. Willie Garcia was 18 years old when he kicked off the Midnighters' ode to the most famous drag in East L.A. bandmate Ronnie Figueroa's tongue-in-cheek Speedy Gonzalez cheer is a celebratory scream, a grito. That kind of sets it off and says, this is Mexicano, but then it goes into the surf guitars. Ruben Molina, author of the book Chicano Soul, says that mix of musical styles perfectly represents the spirit of 1960s East L.A. You'll hear influences from surf music to rhythm and blues, to uh, Mexican music. I mean, it's basically what the Chicano is. We're a mixture of Mexican heritage, but living in America. It kind of signified like we are here. This is who we are. Midnighters started out as Mexican-American high school students playing at backyard parties, quinceaneras, church halls. They spoke Spanish at home, English at school. They grooved to the Temptations and Smokey Robinson, but also Mexican balladeers and the new rock and roll bands imported from England, says bass player Jimmy Espinosa. It was just a whole spirit of the sizzling 60s. When the Beatles hit, it changed everything. Espinosa leads the current incarnation of the Midnighters. He says back then the band members wore matching suits and mop-top haircuts like their British idols. They also love to cruise down the boulevard, low and slow, in souped-up cars. Anything from a 49 Chevy, you know, lowered with rims and candy apple red, to a 58 Ford, to a Buick. They were all cherried out. And they packed the boulevard side by side. It was so congested, they'd be passing phone numbers back, across the yellow line, they'd be flirting with each other. And so it's very innocent, really. You can hear a lot of laughter and chatter in the song Whittier Boulevard. And in fact, the tune that hit the airwaves was actually just a rehearsal recording that began by reworking the bass riff of the Rolling Stone song 2120 South Michigan Avenue. The Midnighters' lead singer Willie Garcia, better known as Little Willie G, says bassist Benny Lopez was just sort of fooling around. Benny altered the bass line. That attracted us. Little Willie G says just as the Stones named their song after a famous location, the home of Chess Records, the Midnighters decided to do the same. We were hoping the Stones would sue us or make a comment about it to give it more notoriety, and they never did. (laughs) The song was originally on the B-side of their single Evil Love, but when he heard Whittier Boulevard, then-local radio DJ Casey Kasem decided to make it a hit. For a second time today, this is Whittier Boulevard, done by the Midnighters. After that, the Midnighters were mobbed by fans wherever they went. 
They were considered the Beatles of East Los Angeles. And the band is still revered by younger musicians like Bardo Martinez, lead singer of the group Chicano Batman. He says Whittier Boulevard captures the essence of Mexican-American culture in East L.A. and anyone, really, with a cool car and a rockin' stereo. And you bump. You can hear that half a block away, and it's all bass. That's the aesthetic. So you show off how loud your car bumps, just bumping it, (laughs) saying, look at me. You know, we own this street. This street is us, and this is sometimes this is all we got. Let's take a trip down Whittier Boulevard. 53 years later, little Willie G invites us to cruise the famous thoroughfare. We're in his friend Larry Sias's 48 Chevy Fleet Line. Hydraulics lift the body up and down. Chrome trim, mohair seats, Bakelite knobs on the wooden dash. It's a sweet ride down memory lane, even though today there are laws against cruising. It's sort of our Route 66, huh, Larry? Yeah. There was record stores and little uh, clothing stores and everything that a neighborhood would need. There was a theater right here on this corner, the Whittier Cinema. Now it's a Walgreens. <laughs> we pass places that became landmarks in the coming Chicano movement. The high schools where students walked out demanding better educations. What used to be the cafe where news reporter Ruben Salazar was covering anti-war protests and was killed by sheriff's deputies. The innocence of Whittier Boulevard as a cruising anthem was transformed into a call to action, says Little Willie G. Because it was us. It gave us a voice. You know, sort of like a rally cry for us to kind of assemble, right? And say, hey, are we on the same page? And most of us said, yeah. Whittier Boulevard became a rallying cry that helped provide a soundtrack for the Chicano movement. And three years after the song hit the airwaves, the Midnighters released another instrumental, Chicano Power. Mandalit Nambarco, NPR News. This is our last song, and we're going to turn to a children's choir staple. But this little light of mine was also a spiritual that was transformed by the nation's civil rights movement into something bigger. Eric Deggins tells us how the song spread across the world, even as questions remain about who originally created it. As freedom singer Rutha Mae Harris, and she'll answer plainly, you can't just sing this little light of mine, you gotta shout it. Harris is facing a tour group in a small church next to the Albany Civil Rights Institute in Georgia, showing them how she and her fellow freedom singers belted out songs to get through protests in the early 1960s. This little light of mine helped steady their nerves as abusive police officers with billy clubs threatened to beat them or worse. It kept us from being afraid. We started singing a song. And somehow those billy clubs would not hit you. They played a very important role during the movement. Harris's voice gives the crowd a taste of that feeling from the 1960s. It's a unifying affirmation that's contagious. And the song has the same impact in today's times, where demonstrators still leverage its power to push back against injustice. Last year, Reverend Osajifo Uhuru Seku used this little light of mind to curb passions during a counter-protest before a crowd of white supremacists and alt-right supporters in Charlottesville, Virginia. Do you guys sing? The group of clergy and volunteers who sang, including academic Cornell West, were captured in a YouTube video. 
you can hear chants from alt-right supporters yelling, you will not replace us. Leading the singing was Reverend Seku, a recording artist and activist. Well, we had originally said we were going to stand silently, but the Nazis were marching past us, cursing and yelling mostly homophobic slurs at us. And I do know that, you know, Pentecostals, we talk about changing the atmosphere. And so I know song could do that, so I just broke out in this little light of mine. And it shook the Nazis. They didn't know what to do with that joy. We weren't going to let the darkness have the last word. It makes sense that a song with this much power would also be one of the most versatile anthems around, inspiring all kinds of musical artists. Bruce Springsteen used this little light of mine to take audiences to church on his tour with the Seeger Sessions Band. The Disney Channel built a 2012 movie around the song called Let It Shine that added rap. And it even brought a little soul music to the last royal wedding, courtesy of British gospel artist Karen Gibson and the Kingdom Choir. Sometimes, experts say, songs like This Little Light of Mine start off as children's folk songs, which become spirituals sung everywhere from churches to prison work camps. Like this version, sung by Texas prison mate Doris McMurray, recorded in 1939 by folklorist John and Ruby Lomax. So who created this little light of mine? Wikipedia and some books credit Harry Dixon Lowe's, a teacher and composer born in 1892 whose obituary says he wrote 3,000 songs and edited at least a dozen hymnals and songbooks. That would be an interesting cultural cross-pollination, a white composer creating a song popular in black churches and credited in some books as an African-American spiritual. But researchers at Moody Bible Institute, where Lowe's taught for 21 years, say they found no evidence he wrote the song or claimed to write it. They note that he did create a popular arrangement of it in the 1940s, performed here by noted gospel singer George Beverly Shea in 1948. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. And once the song was popular, it belonged to everyone. As the civil rights movement grew in the 1950s and 60s, singers changed the lyrics to reference their struggles. These new versions were known as freedom songs. Activists like Fannie Lou Hamer, heard here, and Zilphia Horton sang freedom song versions of This Little Light of Mine and taught it to others. One place where a lot of this sharing occurred was the Highlander Folk School, a cultural center in Tennessee where activists like Rosa Parks, Pete Seeger, and Martin Luther King Jr. gathered to trade ideas. Candy Carawan, who worked with her late husband Guy Highlander's music director and song leader, said songs like This Little Light of Mine could be nonviolent weapons. You know, it's a way to uh, speak to power in a way that is not going to get you shot, kind of a nonviolent tool. It's a way to say, this is what we think, this is what we feel, but, you, you know, you're singing it. 
It might seem odd to call such an innocent-sounding song defiant, but that's exactly how blues singer Betty Mae Fikes felt when she created her classic version of This Little Light of Mine in 1963. She improvised the lyrics after a protest in which several of her friends had been attacked. And I'm thinking, you know, how is the light shine when they're trying to put our lights out? So everybody was taking verses. In order to come in, I just went into the slave call. And all of a sudden, I just started adding our oppressors in the song. Tell Jim Clark I'm going to let it shine. And as I added my oppressors, hear other people in the audience begin to shout out, tell the KKK, tell our president. It was like being free. Still, one question persists. Why has this little light of mine survived for so long? Robert Darden, a professor at Baylor University who's written about the song in at least two books, has a theory. If you've asked some of the survivors of the civil rights movement, as I did, survivors who sang these songs for protection and for courage, why this little light of mine survives and is still sung, they would look at me straight in the eye and say, because those songs are anointed. And as an academic, I have no way to refute that, nor do I want to. It's obvious this American anthem sparks a feeling, which made so many who sing it feel a little less alone and a little more free, which probably explains the enduring power of this little light of mine better than any other reason. This little light of mine. Eric Deggins, NPR News. I'm gonna let it shine. Say it All right, y'all, that's our show. Please follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Codeswitch. We want to hear from you. Our email is codeswitch at npr.org. You can always send us your burning questions about race with a subject line, ask Codeswitch. Sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash Codeswitch and subscribe to the podcast on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. And this episode was produced by Tom Cole, Walter Ray Watson, and Phil Harrell with help from Maria Paz Gutierrez. It was edited by Tom Cole, Elizabeth Blair, and Walter Ray Watson with help from Sammy Ennigan. Want to shout out the rest of the Codeswitch team? Karen Grigsby-Bates, Leah Danella, Adrian Florido, Kumari Devarajan, and Kat Chow. Mayo Aina is our Croc Fellow. Our intern is Andrea Henderson. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. Be easy, y'all. Peace. What's unique about the human experience, and what do we all have in common? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on TED Radio Hour, we go on a journey through the big ideas, emotions, and discoveries that fill all of us with wonder. Find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts.